listeners, thank you for tuning in to the BPL podcast today. I'm Jeff. And I'm Leanne, and we're librarians at Bexley Public Library. Today, we had the pleasure of speaking with Susan Orlean, this year's Bexley Community Author Series author. I am very excited to talk with Susan today because I read both The Orchid Thief and the library book and was blown away by both of them. And you just finished the library book, right? Literally finished it this morning. (laughs) Perfect. Just in time. And it was great. Yeah. You know, it's going to be really hard not to just only ask her, so Meryl Streep played you in a movie. How does that feel? Right, right. (laughs) But I feel like for any of our listeners don't know, you should absolutely check out Adaptation, the film, from the library and give it a watch. Because what a wild ride, right? Truly. It's it's not. Whatever you think it is, it's not that. It's not that. (laughs) Guarantee it. So stay tuned, dear listeners, and we are going to that interview right now. Heralded as a national treasure by the Washington Post, Miss Orlean's newest release, The Library Book, was an instant New York Times bestseller. A breathtaking exploration of the history, power, and future of libraries, the library book was named a top book by the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Goodreads Book Club Picks. Miss Orlean's 1998 book, The Orca Thief, inspired the Academy Award-winning film Adaptation, and she is a longtime staff writer at The New Yorker and a former contributing editor at Rolling Stone and Vogue. Welcome, Susan Orlean. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I'm delighted to be with you. I wish I were with you in person, but this will do. Yeah, we We wish you were with us in person as well, (laughs) for sure. So Susan, you're from Shaker Heights, and you contributed an essay about Ohio to the 2008 book, State by State, A Panoramic Portrait of America, in which you dispel some of the commonly held myths about Ohio. Can you talk about your Midwestern roots and how those roots shape you as a person? I think being from the Midwest has had a lot to do with who I am and particularly with who I am as a writer. For one thing, I grew up in a wonderful community that was very diverse and very progressive and very interested and supportive of education. And, you know, that that was an incredible environment to grow up in and one that I think I have to credit for a lot of who I am and what I am. I also think, even though this sounds funny, I think being from the Midwest, the lack of pretension is a great value for a writer. The idea that the world, the part of the world that you know, the part of the world you grew up in is not the be-all and end-all of the world, is a really good way to enter the world with a curious mind. I, I think that it makes you feel like there is more to learn and more to see. One of the things about growing up in a place like New York or Los Angeles is you are so overwhelmed by the presence of those places that in a way you can feel almost satisfied. You don't need to learn more about the rest of the world because you've got the entire world right there. Being from a place in the Midwest where you know there's more to learn and more to see inspires you to look for it. I think those are great qualities for anybody, but in particular, I think they're great qualities for a writer and ones that I feel have really come into play in my life. 
Wow. And that's so interesting. And I don't know, maybe it's just because we're from Ohio. <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm thinking, but because you're, you grew up in Shaker Heights, was that? Right. And, and it seems that Shaker produces, you know, these best-selling authors with, you know, you, Celestine, is also from Shaker Heights. And then here in Bexley, we have R.L. Stein. Uh, you know, so maybe Ohio is just the special sauce. We have authors and we have astronauts. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> presidents. And presidents, right? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, Ohio has been the birthplace of a lot of people who have become prominent and important in history, whether it's the fact that the education is strong, whether it's some something in the air, who knows? Um, certainly the numbers are probably above and beyond the statistical likelihood. So there may be something in the air that we haven't yet identified. Yeah, we like to think so. Yeah, yeah the three Ohioans on the podcast are going to say, yep, that's true. <laughs> oh, right, why not? Um, well, and so this actually kind of leads into the next question. There was a New York Times article that was written about your book, The Library Book, in 2018 by Michael Lewis. And he wrote about your incredible talent for finding material for these really fascinating, compelling books in otherwise undramatic settings, like a public library or in the case of The Orchid Thief you know, this story that no one was really paying attention to. It's often through unusual characters um, or these like kind of colorful characters that populate your books. Um, So of course, in The Orchid Thief, that character was John LaRoche, um, the man arrested for orchid poaching in Florida. And he was certainly a character. And then the library book features all sorts of, you know, this cast of characters from the dawn of libraries, um, but also features Harry Peake, who was charged with the arson of the library. So can you talk about what draws you to writing about these sort of outsider characters? And is that where you start your sort of investigation with the characters or or is that just where you find yourself going? Oh, that's a great question. I would say that I usually begin with a situation. In the case of The Orchid Thief, the situation was this arrest that had taken place And every element of the situation interested me, Um, not to reveal too much of my ignorance, but I had no idea that orchids grew wild in Florida. I had no idea of why anyone would poach them. I, you know, the entire story fascinated and mystified me. And I was drawn into it, and inevitably, I think you are drawn in by the story of people. I mean, it it, it starts with a situation, but almost without fail, the stories that become the most interesting are driven by characters who embody the story. And I think if you were working on a book and no character really emerged it would be a little scary. I think you would you would begin to wonder whether there was enough narrative drive for a reader. The, the bottom line is people are interested in people. People are very intrigued by situations, but ultimately what people remember about a story are personalities. So I've been very lucky that even though I'm initially pulled in by some story that puzzles me 
And in the case of the library book, again, it was something where I had no idea that this fire had taken place. And I, I was fascinated by it and also kind of fascinated by the fact that I had never heard about it. And when it was such a significant event and I thought, well, that's strange. I wonder, I wonder why. And you living in LA. Well, I didn't, I didn't live in LA at at the time of the the fire, but I still felt like as a writer, as a reader of a lot of media, I couldn't understand why I had never heard about this story. And of course, as a writer, I'm always delighted when I hear about a story that seems very interesting that nobody seems to have paid attention to. So this was certainly one. I had no idea who the characters would be in the library book. I knew right away that I would be very interested in the story of the young man who was accused of the arson. Inevitably, he would be a main character. What I hadn't expected were all of the stories, particularly of historical stories of the head librarians of the library, each of whom had a true saga attached to them. And I had gone into the book thinking I would do little thumbnail sketches of the previous city librarians. I I didn't think they would be very interesting. I just thought, I'll, I'll just say who they are. And, you know, eight months later, as I'm still learning about Charles Lummis, Mary Jones, I thought, oh, my God, I could do a book that was just about Charles Lummis or just about Mary Jones. So the, the delight is finding those characters. The entry point, though, usually is the narrative, the story. It's sort of analogous with the city librarians, um, you know, here at Bexley, our history of library directors is almost like you could write a book about each one. And the mark that they leave on the city and the patrons who still remember them, even though they haven't worked, you know, here in 30 years. They are they are really uh, influential people, which is something that even I, as an avid library user, it, it had never dawned on me. It, it, it never I think. Like a lot of people, I assume that libraries simply bought all the books that were being published and indexed them and made them available. I I had no understanding of the fact that library collections are built. They are actively curated and that the heads of libraries become very important figures in how that happens, and also how the library interfaces with the public, because you get mm-hmm. such a range of attitudes and personalities, and, and you know it's a very political job. Um, in most cities, the city librarian has to deal with city hall and budgets, and it's a very nuanced job. And certainly in a million years, I wouldn't have known that had I not started working on the book. Right. Librarians consider Ohio to be maybe the best state in the nation for libraries. And maybe that's why we have so many writers and so many presidents and so many astronauts, because we have the best libraries. Yeah. I I mean, look, that's such an enormous part of it. And all along the way throughout history, 
when you know when libraries began and they were the exclusive domain of educated white men it was li- heads of libraries who pushed that forward and made libraries open for women made libraries open for children made libraries open to people of all races and that that momentum really has come from the heads of libraries. So they they are really important figures in a way that you only appreciate sort of in retrospect, thinking, hmm, that, I mean, Charles Lummis, for instance, was the first library director in LA and really one of the, the kind of leading edge librarians of his era at the turn of the century to feel that libraries should be open to working class people. And he actively went to factory owners and railroad companies and said, you should get your workers to get library cards because this will be a good way for them to educate themselves. Up until that point, nobody thought uneducated people had any place in the library. It really was you're an educated man, come use the library. And they were not um, promoted to working class people. They just weren't. And it was really kind of radical what he did. And he was a lunatic and had many um, personal foibles, but he was extremely, extremely forward thinking in ways that when you think 1900, he was pushing this very populist attitude. That's pretty amazing. And that was not, you know, they were still having slave auctions in in Los Angeles around that same time. So, you know, I'm not that interested in writing about politics. I am interested, though, in how people who are not overtly political influence our social experience and um, librarians are very much in that category. Yeah, you're absolutely right on that. And, and you know, li- librarians, library staff, directors, you know, that they shape the organization, which then shapes the broader community. And I hadn't really thought about it like that before. And then it, it of course, funnels down to the individual librarian pointing a LGBTQ teenager to a book that might help him or her accept themselves. And, you know, so there are these micro and macro effects, you know, a single librarian can be, have a profound effect on a person's life. And your book did such a good job of of kind of relaying that and such a short book, too, and just such a wonderful job. And I think that's what really resonated in it. I mean, it caught fire. <laughs> Sorry. Um, in the in library land because of that, you know, I think a lot of us really were like, whoa, she's not even a librarian. And she's like hearing all of our internal discussions with each other and in in library land on trying to figure out how do we do right by our communities and by the profession? Well, I take that as a huge compliment because I'm no expert. I came into this book knowing nothing about the workings of a library. In fact, that was part of what interested me as a writer was thinking, well, I love libraries, but I don't really know anything about them. So this is going to be my chance to learn. But you always are aware as a, as a writer, um, 
that there are people inside the worlds you're writing about who know it very, very well. And they're the ones who can either call you out for having missed the point or ideally, um, and what you dream of is that they feel that you really understood them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and continuing with the library book, sort of a, a different angle, something that I picked up as I was reading it very recently. Um, there's a passage in which you convey how the library staff responded to the, the 1986 fire at the Los Angeles Public Library. And so, so this one response reads, quote, feeling of powerlessness, helplessness, brought about by confusion, feeling of isolation, of having to work in an almost empty shell of a building that was once a vital place, end quote. And so this struck me as being eerily similar to our experience working in public libraries during the COVID-19 pandemic. So is there any wisdom that you gained from your research and discussions with these library staff from that time that maybe you could share with us and our listeners about perseverance during a period like that? It's interesting because... Um... I would say for probably 100% of the libraries across the country and around the world, this is undoubtedly the longest period of time they've ever been closed. The LA library after the fire, even though the main building was closed, they did find temporary quarters to at least partially open. So this, this is so unusual. It's so extreme. The thing that's, um, well, I think there are two points to make. Number one, every library I know has worked very hard to figure out what they can provide when the physical place is not available. And there is a lot. And in a way, we're very lucky that this happened now and not 20 years ago when there wasn't a lot of digital material. So how wonderful that there is at least some of the library that can function, that the websites are busy, that um, people can borrow the digital material. And 20 years ago, it would have been a dead stop. There, there would have been nothing that you could do. So that's kind of wonderful. And, and I think, I don't know if you've done this, but libraries have begun allowing curbside pickup and mm -hmm. loaning of books that they've managed so that people aren't left completely unable to access the library. If anything comes of this, it will certainly be the deep appreciation of the physical fact of libraries. Because, you know, there was a lot of chatter for a long time of what do we need libraries for? Everything is digital. We don't need the big fancy buildings, the expensive buildings. We can just have people check books out electronically. This, I think, will drive home to everybody the fact of the library as a physical place that we value and need and will eagerly re-embrace when the pandemic is behind us. So you never would wish something like this merely to drive a point home, but I think it at least will serve as a reminder for that. And again, just remind people how libraries are 
for many people, the most benign in a positive way arm of the municipal experience that you miss having that place that, you know, isn't fraught with controversy the way schools are, the way, I mean, just about every other aspect of municipal living has a lot of, a lot of different opinions and clashes and conflict. And um, libraries are this respite from that. And I think people people are perhaps appreciating that more, more than ever. It's weird because libraries are often the place you go in an emergency. And I did think it was kind of interesting. And that's happened certainly in Los Angeles a number of times where there have been fires and different crises and, and people use the library as a sort of home base. So that's been very weird that we haven't been able to have that during this crisis. And I think if there could have been some way to have libraries be open, it would have served as um, kind of a comforting presence for people. That's a lot of the what we've been hearing Really? From our patrons, you know, oh, 100%. Yes. So I'm going to kind of jump way back because um, I was going to ask you uh, what surprised you most about libraries, but you've kind of touched on that. So I'm your background was in investigative journalism. Uh, yes. I, I, I would say a sort of combination of feature writing um, and investigative reporting. Okay. So what has surprised you most? Has there been any like any kind of big story, anything that has really surprised you or stuck out or like just, wow, that was a really great thing that I learned um, researching these things and writing for The New Yorker? Wow. Oh, gosh. You know, I have had the luckiest career, and I mean that very sincerely, um, because I... I always write things. I always write about things I don't know anything about. So I don't think I've ever had an experience where I didn't come out of the reporting just bubbling over with everything I learned. That's the experience I have reading your work. Oh, really? Oh, well, that's absolutely that's awesome. When you said earlier, you said something about you're like, oh, I don't want to, you know, sound ignorant, but I didn't know that orchids were you know, this popular thing that, or, you know, that people would go like, yeah, that's a thing that everyone knows because of the orchid thief by Susan Orlean that everyone has read, you know, so like, I don't know. It's like, that's how I have felt when I've read, you know, your work or the work of someone like David Grant, you come out of it being like, I need to tell everyone that I know, have you heard of this thing? And here are all the details and how it's connected. Well, and that's, that is the experience that I have learning about these subjects. And then that's what I, that's what I want to achieve in the writing is to sort of like tug on your shirt sleeve and say, you're not going to believe what I just learned. This is incredible. And, and that is the way that I write. I don't write about things I already knew about. I, first of all, I don't know that much about anything. I had a, (laughs) you know, a wonderful liberal arts education, but I didn't know about anything. And, but I know how to learn about things. Uh, and that's my 
expertise, I suppose, is that I'm good at learning about things. And I have a book coming out in the fall, and it's a collection of pieces I've done about animals. And I'm going through and editing the pieces now, and I'm reading it. And some of these pieces I wrote many years ago, so some of the information is like I never knew it because I've forgotten it. And I'm reading the stories going, oh, my God, I had no idea that there were that many mules in the United States. Like, that's incredible. <laughs> I mean, to me, that's the the delight in writing. I love learning about stuff. And then I love telling people what I learned and hoping that they will be as excited about it as I am. And part of what I enjoy is the idea that they're learning about something that they didn't think they cared to learn about. It's something that I know is so interesting. And I know you didn't wake up this morning thinking you needed to know about how the army uses mules, but it's so interesting. And if you give me a little bit of time, I can tell you why it's so interesting. And, and so when you say, is there something that stands out? I, I would never be able to single anything out because every one of these stories has been that kind of experience. Every one of them has made me just say, Oh my God, you're not going to believe you can't, I can't believe this. That is so wonderful. It's, it's really fun. What could be more fun than to learn about stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, in a way it's a bit like the experience as a librarian because, you know, we don't have to know everything, but we have to know how to find everything. Right. And so sometimes over the course of answering a reference question or something like that, yeah, you get sucked into this very odd topic that you knew nothing about 15 minutes ago. And all of a sudden you, you're like, oh, wow, I did not expect my day to go this way, but I love it. Cool. And actually, I think that the parallels are absolutely apt. I think that it really, you know, you have to know how to find out information. And in your case, people ask you specifically to pursue something. So the difference for me is that I have to go out and and kind of trawl for those interesting subjects. Well, so I'm going to just go ahead and ask. So since you already talked about you you have a new book coming out in the fall, can you tell us about it? You said it's about animals. Do you want to talk about it at all? Oh, I'd love to. It's called On Animals, and it's a collection of about a dozen pieces or more, actually, of stories I've done over the last 20 years about animals ranging from my most recent New Yorker piece, which was about a um, virus that's killing all the rabbits around the world, to pieces that I wrote long, long ago about tigers, about whales. Um, You know, they're always indirectly about the people that have in one form or another some relationship to the animals I'm writing about. So they they are as much about the humans connected to these animals as they are about the animals. Anyway, it's um, the book is called On Animals. It'll be out in October, and I love writing about animals. So this this includes many of my very favorite pieces from throughout my career. Are there any on lobsters? 
I always think about consider the lobster when. But coincidentally, today, as I was uh, going through and editing a piece I'd written about a woman who had 27 pet tigers, there was a mention about a very famous um, animal welfare case that involved a lobster. Oh, wow. Yeah. So lobsters get a mention. Okay, great. (laughs) Carry on the tradition. (laughs) Right. Well, well, Susan, as we wrap up here, um, we always do a a segment on our podcast um, about what the guest is currently listening to or reading or just something that's inspiring them lately or they're enjoying. Anything come to mind for you? Um, Absolutely. I am just finishing my second time of reading City of Thieves by David Benioff, which is really fantastic, and Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, which is also wonderful. Um, I, I would say that's taking up a lot of my reading time, and I just finished a absolutely amazing television show. Um, I'm still suffering from having finished it called the bureau. Um, it's a French television show that runs, I think it was six seasons and we just finished it and it's phenomenal. So there's a lot of heartache in my house since we're so, <laughs> we're so sad that we finished it. I, having to find a new show in this economy is like <laughs> just... very tough. We tried yeah. two new shows last night and didn't like either one. So oh, we're, no. we're, we're feeling a little bit pessimistic. Sure. Well, thank you for sharing. And is there anything else you would like to plug or share with our listeners? Oh, I just would like to say, um, stay well and hang in there for all of us, um, I know that one of the first things everybody is looking forward to is the reopening of libraries. And with luck, that will be in the near future. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for um, being on the podcast. Um, it has been a great honor talking to you and, and meeting you. So thank you so much. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it so much. And uh, next time in person. Yes. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> thank yeah. you so much, Susan. Awesome. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so we just got off uh, with Susan Orlean. Wow. I w- I could listen to her talk about any subject for any amount of time, which is probably why um, her books are so wonderful. So great. All righty. So, uh, again, for our listeners, Susan Orlean is our featured author for the Bexley Community Author Series event this year that is rescheduled from 2020, and that will be a virtual event held on Tuesday, April 27th, 2021 at 7 p.m. That is free to all attendees. Uh, Ms. Orlean's talk will be followed by discussion and Q&A with Dr. Yvonne Garcia from the College of Worcester. You can register for that event at bexleylibrary.org. If you liked what you heard today, please help us grow by telling a friend. Rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and send us comments, suggestions, or questions. This is new, everybody. We've created a podcast email address. So email us your comments, suggestions, questions at podcast at bexleylibrary.org, and we may read your email on a future episode. You can follow the library across platforms at Bexley Library and find all the information you need about upcoming programs and events on our website at bexleylibrary.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.